0: I imagine some of the traditions that we celebrate around the holidays coming up this week ahead will endure for many on this continent in this nation. I imagine the food, the gatherings, the nationally recognized time off from work, I hope some of that will persist. Especially the time to do nothing but eat and be together in a country where time off to do nothing but eat and be together is increasingly an anathema. And Black Friday, a symbol of why and how. And it's fair to say that there is a shadow also that is lengthening over this holiday, right? and some others too, particularly those with a patriotic spin. This is the shadow cast by history and fact, cast by a fuller history, a history more bloody, more bent on extraction than harmony, and the one simply more true than the founding story of the myth of pilgrim and native peoples sharing the first joyful meal of harvest together. The story that a member of the Wampanoag community and nation told in an article this week in the New York Times. A story of prices paid for native scalps and people driven from their land and children taken away to schools made to forget their native ways and lands mined and extracted and sacred lands still at risk for all of that. And it is asking and increasingly demanding revision of the history that we tell together as ours, and rightly so. And maybe also asking over time a reframe of the traditions we step into in this next week. Already is. So at this moment in, in history and in living into this invitation to tell a different story, maybe one of shared geography and the weaving of stories more truly, I wanted to talk about pecans. Depending on where you're from, you may pronounce that word differently. But we won't let that get in the way of our unity this morning. We'll set that issue aside. We have a nut to talk about together. Actually, not a nut, but what's apparently technically really called a droop. But for the sake of ease, let's go with the more common misperception and call it a nut for today, if that's okay. Pecan trees are one of the most recently domesticated crops and grow best in warm climates, you probably already know, most notably in the US from east to central Texas and western Louisiana and up through Oklahoma and Arkansas and Kansas and Missouri and kind of tracing up the southern part of the Mississippi River. But like many crops, you can find them where people migrated and brought their stores of pecans with them and dropped them accidentally or intentionally and hopefully into the ground, the places people made a new home. And so pecans weave into the stories of the people who made home in all the lands of this continent, native born for generations and settlers too and all the generations to follow. I've been reading this fall, slowly making my way through Braiding Sweetgrass, which is the book by botanist professor and member of the citizen Potawatomi nation, Robin Wall Kimmerer. The subtitle of the book is Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Early on in the book, (coughs) Kimmerer (coughs) excuse me, talks about pecans and how they weave through the story of her family. You heard part of that story in the reading this morning of her grandfather and other boys stumbling on the bounty of a year when the pecans fruited, unprepared but not willing to waste a moment to harvest them, being creative. They take off their dungarees, tie them up, at the ankle of the pant leg and stuff them as full as they can and carry them home. That story reminded me of the time that my cousins and I stumbled on a big patch of wild raspberries while wandering the land behind where they lived, and similarly determined to bring them home, folded up our t-shirts, mine white when it all began and piled them full and took them home and everyone had vanilla ice cream piled high with wild raspberries for dessert that night. Who doesn't know the joy of a wild harvest when we stumble on it? Kimmerer tells more about this place that her grandfather lived and how it and the pecans wove into his story and therefore into hers. When he was that boy wandering the land and the fishing holes, it was in what was still then called Indian territory. His people's land had originally been around Lake Michigan, but with colonization, they were marched at gunpoint along what came to be known as the Trail of Death because the journey would claim over half of his people by the time it was over. His family, her family, were forced to Wisconsin and then Kansas and each time removed as those lands were wanted by another group of white settlers and finally lured to Oklahoma where promises of citizenship and land ownership encouraged them to uproot again only to be betrayed by the fine print where the Unpaid taxes on such land could cause forfeit of it, but moved to a land that provided almost no means to earn the money to pay the taxes. It was while living in a shanty on that Oklahoma prairie that the boys meandering through the landscape stumbled on those pecans. The word pecan, Kimmerer writes, quote, is the fruit of the tree known as the pecan hickory. It comes to English from the indigenous languages. Pigan is a nut, any nut. The hickories, black walnuts, and butternuts of our northern homelands have their own specific names. But those trees, like the homelands, were lost to my people. When they got to Kansas and later to Oklahoma, when they arrived, without a name for this new food, they just called them nuts, pecan, which became the English pecan. The pecans she and others harvested, they were full of protein and especially fat. Poor man's meat, she says, and they were poor, she says. They were happy for these nuts that had everything necessary to sustain life. In fact, the botanist in Kimmerer points out how the abundance of the pecan harvest, the excess of what the tree showers down on the earth, is its way to survive, part of its strategy that it showers down more nuts than any local species or combination of species can eat so that some have a chance to decay and find root in the ground. The fact that when these nuts are kept dry and safe, that it can carry a family a little bit of the way through winter is also significant. It was a lifesaver for all kinds of species and for human beings too. Others in our own community have analogous stories that I didn't solicit but was happy to hear. Tom Brookshire wrote about his harvests. (laughs) He wrote, my last two years of undergraduate school found me in an an inexpensive small normal school slash liberal arts college in central Georgia. I was living on a shoestring in a condemned house with a couple of other students. My campus student work stipend was $25 a week and the campus greens were edged with tall stately pecan trees, which one year in the late autumn, the grounds got carpeted with nuts At that time, they were treated as waste by the grounds crews, so I could pick up as much as I wanted. I discovered you could sell them, and I was able to collect and sell several 20-pound boxes to a local warehouse that fall. That was a significant boost to my income, food money. I never made pecan pie, but I was also able to eat pecans for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. John Bowman, another member, wrote of how his wife, who grew up in Pennsylvania Dutch country, far from pecan groves, used to grow up eating the favorite shoe fly pie, which looks suspiciously like pecan pie without the pecans. (laughs) Who knows? Funny, isn't it? If we pay attention how this tree, this fruit, this nut, shows up on our table with all kinds of stories and history behind it. As for Robin Wall Kimmerer, she says, I only make pecan pie at Thanksgiving when there are plenty around to eat it. I don't even like it especially, but I want to honor that tree Feeding guests its fruit around the big table recalls the trees welcome to our ancestors when they were lonesome and tired and so far from home. It strikes me there's a piece of her family's story and our larger nation's story that's in this and worth bringing to the table as we gather this week, as we do this invitational work we are in the middle of. There's one more piece of the story of the pecan that's worth bringing to the table. Kimmerer, botanist, also points out how it is impossible for pecan trees to fruit every year. You imagine that incredible bounty and what it takes, that expenditure of resources that's required for that extravagance it drops beneath it every year. Instead, it turns out pecan trees, maybe you know this, they have to save up for a year or more in, in order to be able to do that. And were one tree to fruit and the others to choose a different year, that would actually compromise the venture, right? because there might be birds and squirrels and hogs and other local animals and humans around to inhale the whole of it. So, by evolutionary miracle or natural wonder, what actually happens is that across a grove, across a county, across a nation, the pecan fruits in the same year. Zimmerer writes, the trees do not act as individuals, but somehow as a collective. Exactly how they do this, we don't know yet. And here Zimmerer, botanist who is also Zimmerer, Potawatomi citizen, as if the two were ever separate, or should be, continues. What we see is the power of unity. What happens to one happens to us all. We can starve together or feast together. All flourishing is mutual. May the richness of the layered stories of this time, told and not yet told, may it show up at our tables and be part of what takes root in us and among us this November. And the feast of pecans and other foods bring to the welcome table the truth sometimes forgotten, sometimes reclaimed. Never more important that all flourishing is mutual. Amen.